the path doesn't have to be straight. We have a lot more information that we Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome to the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm Vanessa Alava. And I'm Sue Robinson. Before we get started today, we would so appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, and comment on the show. Have you ever wondered who is teaching artificial intelligence? How does it recognize a polyp on a medical scan or identify graphic images so they don't show up on your Twitter feed? Today, we're talking with author Mary Gray about ghost workers, the invisible human workforce that trains AI algorithms by labeling oceans of data generated by industries and each of us. We'll take a look at the good, the bad, and the ugly of the data labeling industry and what the future of work may look like for us all. Mary is Senior Principal Researcher at Microsoft, a university professor, an anthropologist, a TED Talk speaker, and now, best of all, a WeGraph boss babe and our guest, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yay, welcome. Thanks, Sue and Vanessa. Thanks for having me. So excited to have you with us. This is such a fascinating topic to Vanessa and me. Um, and, And before we dive into ghost work and how AI becomes intelligent, um, I think it would be great to start out and level set with our listeners about sort of an umbrella definition of an umbrella term, which is AI. Can yes. you help us with that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, my co-author, Siddharth Suri, and I opened the book giving that primer because for the most part, you know, the stories we hear about artificial intelligence are presented to us by the people who sell it. <laughs> so I think it's, you know, it's really important to um kind of bring down the bluster a bit and understand that at the end of the day, it's software. You know, it's software that's built to be able to substitute or imitate a person's decision making. So artificial intelligence in the most basic sense is trying to anticipate what will you do next as someone using this uh, device or using this system that's trying to predict a next move. And in all cases, it's basing that next decision, that next move on what are called priors. Like what else did somebody do in the past? So some of the most famous examples of artificial intelligence you might've heard of um, when uh, people from Google's DeepMind beat AlphaGo and then AlphaGo beat itself. Uh, AlphaGo Zero built uh, by the DeepMind um, computer scientists built AlphaGo. All it was doing, and this is not a small thing, was looking at every single move any previous uh, performer, uh, an expert in Go ever made, looked at the rules of the game, and then built out every single decision it could possibly make based on prior decisions. Okay. So it's taking humans, really, to train and to identify, and that is what brings us to data labeling. If you could maybe define that for us, what what is data labeling? Yeah, so in every case, the training of an algorithm to imitate what a person just did is looking at training data. And the training data are things like 
the rule set for AlphaGo. And I'm going to keep it on this, this, this very obvious, very plain example of a game. Because in all cases, it's looking at what's the written material that has a really clear what's called ground truth of what happened next. So with you know, that game Go, it could look at, well, what did this master Go player do when respond to, responding to a specific move? And the data labeling is literally writing out, quite literally writing out, what happened and what's the, the term you'd attach to that move. Might be right center um, to, to black tile. So the data labeling is, it, you might see just a simple map uh, so that when you're training the data, you always know, because computers can't see or really understand anything, but the, the system that's being trained will know, oh, when I see this term, when I see this image, it means this. And it's been verified by a person who's, who's labeled that data. And so you have a book that you've, you've written, you've co-written, um, called Ghost Work, and that speaks to this massive workforce around the world that is that is training these computers to identify images and pieces of information. And why do you call that ghost work? What made you decide that term? Well, we came up with the term because we were trying to capture really the work conditions under which people were doing what is effectively information service work, knowledge work, office work, you might say, that would in any other day be done at a computer screen, looking at Excel spreadsheets, um, and uh, may involve somebody's domain expertise. So the example you gave, radiology, is a really good one. Like in those cases, you might, you might be hiring someone who has a background in radiology to look at a number of scans, be able to identify what's a polyp, what's a lesion. And they're, they're literally looking at that image and maybe a medical record that tells them, yes, indeed, that was uh, benign or malignant. So that's a really good example of this world of, information service work, office work, that for the last decade has been moved to um, platforms that can distribute these tasks of doing data labeling anywhere in the world. In a moment, like literally the, the wink of an eye, you can distribute it anywhere. Can we get into a little bit more uh, on the example side, like how uh, data lab labeling supports AI and, you know, just a vast majority of fields, things that we may not even think about on a daily basis? You bet. So for, for some examples we have where artificial intelligence, let's talk about autonomous cars or content moderation, where we absolutely have seen improvements with what kinds of systems can automatically detect something and then act. Those are examples where the modeling of what to do next has been built on a ton of data, as you said, the sea of data, and having people update and, and annotate and clean the training data that a system that might be um, responding automatically to parking your car, for example. Um, that's one of my favorite examples where now your car might have an idea of where should it move um, your front wheels and how should it adjust and, and kind of um, slide into a space. That's really based on over and over again, a system looking at data that tells it and a person confirming, yes, when you've got this angle, and it's all geometry, when you've got this angle, this is the way you would 
you would turn the car's wheels? Under what conditions would you have it, uh, have the wheels maybe hit a particular barrier? That's the curb. Like it's identifying what's called feature space, trying to understand what are all of the variables that have to be considered to be able to make a decision for you. But even in that case, think about how much time and energy went into making sure that modeling of how to park a car or how to read an image and see it as uh, hate speech versus just um, uh, playful joking. That in all cases, you've had a lot of people analyzing the materials that show them prior examples that give them an idea of, if I see this, then these are the actions you could take. Those are, those are the things we studied were really mundane. We were looking at captioning and translation, we were looking at content moderation and review, data labeling, for, which is part of this world, for everything for medical information um, to text-based uh, customer support. So there's just a world in which training algorithms depends on really reliable data. And for me, you know, and for our research, the, the bigger finding was there's a world of business to business services often that isn't about training the artificial intelligence at all. It's about keeping a person in the loop because artificial intelligence can't actually do the job. I think this is a great transition because as we, as you were speaking, I'm thinking soon I have all these conversations about AI and how, how impactful it is and wonderful in a lot of ways. But the minute you take the human out of it, um, you lose that compassion and that empathy and, you know, if you're in a scenario where AI has to make a decision between, yes, repetition and patterns over and over again, or let's say swerving to save someone's life, whether it exactly. be a family or a child walking across the street, in the, you know, near one of these self-driving cars, et cetera. So let's kind of, you know, unpack that a little bit. Yeah, no, that's such, and it, that's the, the, one of the classic examples. So the trolley car problem is often brought out as this canonical uh, challenge to how we think about how far we want AI to take a, a human decision, where we might be confronted with, sure, it, you know, the car could, could park itself. What does it do if there is a small child? The, you know, the, the cameras on the car can't see, because we have to remember, computers can't see the way humans see. All they're doing is looking for mathematical angles that they've, you know, effectively learned, tell them, if I see this configuration of angles, that means curb. So Does that fall into like an algorithm? I mean, I'm assuming it does. Exactly. Like a type of algorithm. It's so a type it, of, it takes the emotion completely out of it. Absolutely. It's not involved in any um, decision-making that has to do with the senses. So another way to think about it is just strip it down. It's a mathematical equation. That's why we have to think about this as software. It's strictly math. Math is beautiful. It's elegant. It can't sense the world. It is meant to draw an abstract sense of how the world works, and it, it wasn't built. Mathematics cannot feel pain. It cannot feel empathy, and it, it certainly cannot see the complexity of even a shadow that's falling on a child because that's a really complicated mathematical problem that is incredibly challenging to solve. So we're you know, to your earlier point, like we're looking to artificial intelligence to do things to make 
human-like decisions, and we've gotten ahead of ourselves and put it in um, in the driver's seat, quite literally, when the stakes are high. And that's not a good use of artificial intelligence at this stage of the game. The, it, it's not built to be able to anticipate anything uh, that isn't already an established fact or reality. It needs those priors. It, it can't make decisions unless it has priors. Yeah, it's not nuanced in the way that human thought is. And I think that to circle back to what you said at the beginning, Mary, um, that we hear a lot of hubris surrounding AI and how, you know, it's going to take over the world and and it'll be smarter than us. And I mean, certainly artificial intelligence can process large amounts of data faster than humans, but it doesn't have that that nuance. And I think that's super important. And that's why humans are needed to train it. So to get back to then these data labelers and the people who are doing this, tell us why you wanted to write a, you know, do a study on that industry. And what did you find? Because I know some of the things that I've read out there have said sort of, and maybe this is hubris again, but Silicon Valley is creating this underclass of, of workers. I mean, what are your findings? Yeah, I mean, I think what was most striking is just um, genuinely how unintentionally we've proceeded and put artificial intelligence in domains where we need it to perform uh, similar to how we would want a human to, to perform. And it it's so... Um, immature at this stage of its development. So the, what motivated me to, to um, join Sid on this study was to really understand what are the limits of artificial intelligence? How is it built? What can it tell us about the problems that we think are important for solving? What are the problems that we think we want to um, bring the power of computation to be able to uh, augment or back up what a human is doing? And where are these places where we do have some kind of fanciful dreams about replacing people? So to your earlier point, the, the thing about artificial intelligence and really about computation, it is powerful. It can process what's called structured information. Like if it's something that you know 100%, this is, this is accurate, this is true, it can process that information far faster than any human. But the thing it cannot do is make a decision in a space where there isn't a clear yes or no. So if you think about, there's plenty of places where it is fantastic at answering a question if the, you, we all agree on the yes or no. Um, it is terrible at making decisions where we aren't sure what the answer is. That's, that's the big dilemma here, is that it's, it's to study artificial intelligence was to understand what is it that computer scientists and engineers believe are easy questions to answer, and where are there places that, um, that as an anthropologist, I see they might be missing what is really complicated about our social and human lives. Sadly, it's a world in which um, computer scientists and engineers and technologists have really leapt to the fore and been able to, to, to present the, um, the excitement, the possibility of artificial intelligence and computation. But they didn't necessarily have alongside them, or certainly in their training, much that would tell them just how hard it is to get humans right. Like that we're really complicated creatures. We're not physics. We're, we're, we're really more like art. <laughs> it's also try, like just remembering at the core, artificial intelligence. It's artificial 
it's it's not a real human being. It is something that we've created. And unless there, to your point, there's a finite certain answer, anything where there's a gray area, um, right. you know, we're we're going to need that human element. And the challenge here is that when artificial intelligence is really the service or product that's being sold, it's really tough for everyone, including the people building it, to remember, gosh, it actually takes a lot of people to produce this thing. Right. And that's where the underclass is coming from. It's it's in businesses that to date, and this isn't true across the board, we found businesses that were the exception, but right now to date, Businesses don't have to care about the many people they have to draw on in the moment to do the data labeling, to do the content moderation, to stand in to help algorithmic modeling develop. When you know that in most cases you're developing something that will change three months from now, eight months from now, and you're going to have to look for a new crew of people who have different domain expertise to help you develop your technologies. So that the problem is, um, as we probably all have experienced in our lives, when we need somebody desperately right now <laughs> and somebody shows up to serve us, we're incredibly appreciative in the moment. And we culturally, socially do not have a structure in place that really values that work in a, in a, in a long-term sustainable way. You won't see who helped improve your search query. You will never see the person who helped you avoid something kind of gross that could have been posted to Twitter. And yet they've improved your experience of those services and myriad other services. So the challenge in front of us is we don't really have an economic model or um, a, an approach to employment that says, oh, it's, these people are incredibly valuable, even though I'm, I'm not going to know who they are and I may not need their help two days from now. So let's take a deeper dive into that because a lot of these data labelers are um, overseas. They're not in the U.S. There are certainly people doing this in the U.S. as well. But my understanding is yep. that there are, are people in developing countries for whom this actually is, a, is an economic opportunity that they would not have had otherwise. But there's also room for exploitation in that situation. Um, can, can you yeah. talk about that? Yeah. Who's doing this work? And also, how are they trained? I'm, I'm really interested in how they're trained, if you have any insights on that. Yeah. So the study we did involved surveying thousands of workers in both India and the United States, interviewing hundreds of those folks who had um, kindly let us um, interlope um, to hang out in their lives and look at what their workflows, but really their day-to-day -day look like. And these folks are just like you and me. And in, in fact, the, one of the most interesting statistical points was that there was a significant number of people who had um, bachelor's degrees or higher education. So, you know, this is not a group of people who are uneducated. And if you think about this, this makes sense that to do this work means you have a degree of computer literacy, you, you have cultural competency in, in often English or translation of English to another language. So these are folks who um, absolutely have what we consider the, you know, the skills that equip somebody to have a good paying job. The challenge is that they're in environments where there aren't many good entry-level jobs um, other than service work in other domains. That includes healthcare, that includes food service. So it's really coming to grips with what exactly are the jobs out there for people? What are the options? At this point, 8% of the U.S. population has done some form of on-demand work like this. 5% have done this kind of knowledge work. That was before the pandemic. It's really an example of a broader world 
of dismantling full-time employment and moving office work into a, a collection of tasks and projects that you really can put online and people can pick them up. And you don't have to have a formal employment relationship to be able to get work done. I want to go a little bit deeper into the future of work because I think that's a great segue into that. But I want to be sure you have the opportunity to answer Vanessa's question about how these people are trained to label data. Yeah, a lot of these companies are doing it virtually. They're having people take tests, show a certain competency. If you pass the test, then you would go on to be able to access this work. That's often the way in which these workforces are brought to um, the labor pool, not through training, as we might think of it, but these folks have already um, either trained themselves or have experience that qualifies them, and then they're coming to a call for work. Hey, everybody. Sam McLean here from Inphase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. So I have a question, kind of taking an even deeper dive into this. Yeah. Let's say we have a ghost worker who's, who's trained a certain platform where you went through screeners at an airport and if you had something in your hand if it was a white hand and you had something in your hand um it would it would it was able to read it better mm -hmm. and if you were um any you know hispanic or black or whatever it, it interpreted whatever was in your hand as a as a potential gun right so when it comes to, and I don't know if that's basically on the ghost workers part or maybe the company or both, how do you retrain your AI to fix those types of issues? Actually, it's such a perfect example. You need a person in the loop. So in that case, the, you know, the uh, soap dispensers are, for me, one of the examples. Many people don't realize that early soap dispensers that had sensors, hand sensors, where you could just wave your hand under it and it would release the soap. Um, that's that's trained, that's modeled on a certain set of images that see a hand. Well, that early training data was a fairly small data set and included mostly white skin oh, tones. So um, anybody mm. you know who's black or brown, who's ever had difficulty getting a soap dispenser to dispense soap, you can tell them they should send their complaint to the tech company and the company that installed the soap dispenser, because that's a really good example of nobody looked at those images to say, huh, I bet not all skin tones are, re are represented in this data set. So it wasn't um, a good training data set. So now when companies are trying to correct those sorts of and they're not just errors. They're the reality of how racism works its way into our everyday lives, right? So a company that was like, well, you know, an you know, a, a hand is a hand is a hand, did not think through, gosh, I better make sure I have a diverse and inclusive data set so that all skin tones are represented. The correction to that um, allowance of systemic racism to work its way into technology, it's putting a person uh, in the loop to be able to look at the images. And there's a, there is an efficient way to do this where you're taking a sample of those images and a person is able to look at the images and say, oh, I notice a pattern here. But that's such the exception right now. And that's our challenge.
I suppose now what they do is <laughs> they're reactive. You know, they have these issues exactly. that they then try to fix. So yeah. are there different groups of ghost workers that now get those types of um, uh, data sets that they have to then go back and say, okay, well, we need to include more diverse and inclusive images. Is that yes. how it works? Yes. <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing, like any correction that you've seen any technology company make uh, that updates, and I'm going to keep going back to that phrase, updating its priors, it involves bringing people back into the loop to have them look at the material and say, you know, something's missing here. Here's what I think is missing. But you would still need to guide people on what is it that you're hoping to surface. You can get old school with these examples. Like most of modern medicine is built on studies of white men of a very specific age and size. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I need Knee replacements sucked for a really long time for women, <laughs> precisely because it was it did not think medicine did not think, gosh, we are using this universal subject and there's nothing universal about humans. We're all really particular. There's some patterns to pay attention to, and we still need to be thinking creatively so that we don't assume everybody's just the same. Well, it turns out people are really good pattern recognizers. That's what we do best. We're trained to look for patterns. And we can do that without ever having seen um, a stack of data before that. So most of our lives, we're trained to look for, um, to kind of sort, you might say sort and pile. This is what I love about anthropology. Like most of us within a fairly short amount of time can sense when somebody seems angry. Like if you have cultural literacy around the people you're you're near, you could be around complete strangers, but if you're um, of a certain age, of a certain class, of a certain gender, of a certain race, you can, without knowing the person, get a sense like, I think that person might be angry. That's what people do that AI can't touch. And it's the same if you're applying it to a problem like recognizing skin tone. Why is that the same problem? Because for the most part, our incredible um, nuanced capacity for being able to read a scene is something that's that's built on uh, literally every single day of our lives, absorbing what are the norms, what are the expectations. And something like all of us assuming we would want our skin tone recognized, that's a no-brainer for most people. Technology doesn't care. It's, that's, it's impossible. That's mm-hmm. actually technically impossible. It can't care about the same things that we care about unless it's programmed to care about those things. And even when it's programmed to care about those things, it will fall short because we fall short. We fail in those places. Um, what we do know how to do is apologize, right? So tech is constantly catching up with those places. That's why it's reactive. It's constantly catching up with where did we call out where it didn't see us? where it didn't recognize the diversity of who we are. It will always fail. Technologies will always fail us. Um, That's okay as long as we don't put in the position of making high stakes decisions. Let it make low stakes decisions. (laughs) But I think that there's, um, you know, a a pressure, certainly a drive to make high, to have technology make high stakes decisions exactly I, mean, yeah. I think that's yeah. what a lot of the proponents of ai um 
see as its promise, right? Is that we can somehow turn to it and it will be, it will make a better decision than a human would in that situation. And and that to me is a little scary. (laughs) No, it should scare all of us. You hit the nail on the head, Sue. And um, actually, Mary, something you said earlier, which I've never heard a technologist or researcher say it out loud, but it's so true, is that artificial intelligence has its limits when most people think, oh, we're going to push it. Like, what can't it do? Um, so you you said that, and I was like, wow, yeah, that's that's impactful right there. Don't get me wrong. I love technology. It can do amazing things. It When it's applied to settings that, again, have a really clear answer, the history of technology has often been its application in places that are pretty, quite literally, mechanical. So when you're talking about a car or you're talking about um, an assembly line or other kinds of um, very formalized structures that, um, that technologies can just knock out of the park because it's, it's predictable and it's, and it's a, a built environment that's really controlled, that makes it a physics and math problem that's, that's quite doable. But now think about all the promise of AI of delivering on, it's kind of that, what's that business saying of over-promising and under-delivering? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the sense that it could somehow um, also tackle the things that humans do that are about sensing what each other need. That's the place that technologists uh, ventured, again, quite literally and figuratively, and did not fully take on, absorb how complicated humanity and our social interactions are. It, it's so interesting hearing you say this because I just finished reading a book, um, and it's actually a book about transhumanism and Christianity. And it was talking about how transhumanism posits, believes that we will be able to upload ourselves, right, into a computer and avoid death. And um, that's, you know, there are people who really believe that. And this wasn't what we were planning to talk about today. But (laughs) what do you think about the idea of transhumanism? Because I'm hearing you say humans can't be replaced and that a computer will never be able to really absorb what it means to be human. Um, What are your thoughts about that? The question is, what is it that we want from each other? And what is it that we want technology to handle? I think for folks who imagine, have a pipe dream of a world in which we transcend our bodies and can um, live on in artificial intelligence, they're often not fully taking in the constraints on artificial intelligence to interact with people. So, Could our consciousness um, be uploaded into some sort of quantum computing future where I get to experience my individual decisions over and over again? I bet we could create something like that. The experience of exchanging with another human being is unpredictable. In the next three seconds, do you know which words are going to come out of my mouth? No. Even though we know all of the words we might be able to possibly exchange, the unpredictability of our human exchange is the thing that artificial intelligence, by design, can't absorb. I know it's challenging for people to, to, to really hear this, knowing that we've had so many engineers say otherwise. But at the end of the day, just 
use your own domain expertise as a person and think about how many times you've misunderstood someone. That is the dimension of problem space that artificial intelligence is dealing with. And it's not a problem of you didn't have enough data to understand the person. It's that we are that complex. We are that complex. And I think it's, it's fully absorbing the complexity of who we are that makes transcending um, our humanness uh, to me, a, a kind of fanciful, a fanciful um, story we tell ourselves to, to maybe escape now. Just, you know, like um, people who say, well, virtual reality will become so immersive that people will just want to live in that world and never leave it. And But all of that's programmed. Whereas if you're like when I'm out at the beach or something watching a sunset, that exact sunset has never existed before and probably never will again. And, and I don't know what it's going to be until I'm there. So to me, uh, supplanting reality with virtual reality doesn't seem realistic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, the hard thing too is like, you know, that desire to escape reality isn't about virtual reality. It's, a, it's about mm-hmm. where we are. And I think that, you know, that is so hard, I think, for um, many of us to accept that the desire to withdraw is not often about what's pulling us in. It's not the AR. It's not the VR. It's the in real life. What, what does it feel like right now? And that desire to escape, that's so deeply human. I mean, I, I, I would hate to ignore, like, no, that desire to get away from ourselves um, and to offload the weightiness of interacting with each other, as pleasurable as it is, it's also fraught. It's hard. And, you know, I, I think it's it's fully taking that in and holding ourselves accountable for um, the places where we diminish ourselves if we do anything less than accept the messiness. So a lot of these conversations have um, brought up in my brain the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson. So talking about the future of work, is it going to look like a combination of AI and what AI does very well with its precision and potentially bringing on ghost workers to be that human element of that Scarlett Johansson character, her, <laughs> um, to 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 have that, you know, je ne sais quoi that humans have that 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 artificial intelligence will never have. So I guess it would be a combination of her and a little bit of the the Truman Show, <laughs> where you actually have like actors. You know, what I mean, I'm, I'm just putting no, it out I there. Like, no, I love entertainment that. informs our technology. We have that conversation a absolutely. lot. Absolutely, we do. So. No, absolutely. And I I think I actually I feel like those those popular renditions of you know that are that are. Um, projections of what it is we're trying to solve and what troubles us are really important. They register what it is that we're hoping technologies will will do or won't do. And her, I, I used to teach that film in, in my classes. I think it's really important to read that film and take it face value. What is it? What's the aspiration there? It's incredibly gendered. <laughs> it's, you know, it is a, a fantasy of um, offloading the messiness, as we were talking about earlier, of interacting with uh, another human being. And there's nothing, actually, I have no judgment about that. There's nothing particularly wrong or right about it. But the Joaquin Phoenix character is, look at his day job. 
Mm-hmm. His day job is to write for other people so that correspondence between humans doesn't go away. That's the, that is absolutely a form of ghost work that I can see becoming um, a, a market. And we already have a, something of a market for this where we send each other cards and you know, sending electronic cards and coming up with the animations. A person made those animations at some point. Right? We're not thinking about that person who crafted the, the creativity that we're purchasing as part of a service. To me, strip it down. That doesn't have to be bad. There's value in doing that work. And in fact, I think in a lot of ways, seeing his own frustration, that character's own frustration with, you know, with his job, that's the thing I would track, is how do we make that job just a decent job? So that the desire to engage with people outside of that job is as meaningful as we want it to be. Um, the capacity to be able to purchase artificial intelligence, which is actually that's nothing futuristic at all. That's 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 um, happening today. Um, what concerns me about that is that today it's clearly a market mostly of men purchasing um, women and women's presence for comfort. Mm-hmm. That concerns me. And we're not having a social conversation mm-hmm. at all about what it means that some of the most popular chat bots that are effect- effectively dialogue um, AI, they, they're, they're uh, feminized objects, mostly for young men. So that's the conversation I want to have. There's not a reason we can't call that out. And and also, again, not with judgment, say, what's going on there? Such a great point. It is. And it's, it's again, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? 100%. Yeah. Interesting. That's not new. That's not new. And I think it's a, it, the, the, um, the evergreen of that uh, use of technology um, to, in some ways, navigate um, charged gender relationships is this is the moment for us to be able to come back and say, you know, we, let's talk about that. The idea of being able to have someone, and this is, there are startups already doing this day, being able to have someone who at any moment could slip into the loop of conversation of a text thread with an elderly person, your parent, so that they have somebody who helps them age in place. That's the promise of AI. Yeah, like kind of like we were talking about, like AI doing what it's supposed to do, but also having that human element. That's the history of software, right? So what does software do? If we, I mean, when it gets ubiquitous, we don't think about, you know, our word processing software or our sound editing software as maniacal and taking over humanity. We think of it as equipping us to be able to do the things we want to do, think spell check, mm-hmm. <laughs> think all of the things that an editor does mm-hmm. that now a software program can kind of, it can anticipate like, oh, you might want to use this word instead of that word. It doesn't get it a hundred percent, but it's, it's pretty good fidelity. Right. So that's a really good example of we want technologies that support us, that augment us. It's the idea of it replacing us. Ironically, I don't find it threatening. I find it silly because it vastly underestimates what we need from each other. When all else fails, just think of the automated phone systems <laughs> just wanting to get yes. to a human being. Yes, you're just like madly hitting zero. That will always zero. be the case. <laughs> that will always be the case. No, that will always be the case. And actually what I would love is for technologists to assume that will be the case 
So how do I make it really easy for people to do all of the other things before they're connected with a person rather than think what I'm really after is never talking to a person. No, I want to I talk with the person when we're ready to be able to, ha- to make the most of our time. AI could help with that. It's right now, you might say it's being pointed at the wrong problem. Hmm. Really great insight. Um, I know we're running up on our time, but I, I just wanted to ask one last question about the future of work, which is just sort of, you know, we're, we're many of us are part of distributed workforces now because of this pandemic, and I anticipate that that will continue. Um, what do you think the world of work will look like, say, 10 years from now? So this is what I'm really appreciating about having studied people who have been working in this, what seems like such a niche world, but really is such a case study in the reality of so many of us right now. The workforce we studied has been by design distributed. They were never at one site. They've never had one employer. They're often working independently and they're always having to update their own training to be able to come to a new project and and orient to that new project, to the earlier conversation we were having about training. They know they have to learn how to learn to, to equip themselves for the next thing they're doing. So this workforce really reflects to me where we're all headed because it is the trend. We are increasingly um, a world driven by services. Most of our economies, most of our economic lives are about exchanging services, whether that's this podcast or tax help, all of these services that really require having somebody creatively communicate with us. Anytime you need communication and creativity, you're looking at a a world that entails involving people. So knowing that we're headed for more work that's going to be information service driven. And so this workforce that we studied shows us, I would argue, the way to navigate what it means to be working collaboratively in teams that are not co-present and have to really redefine being co-present like we are right now. They show very clearly what are some basics that every working person should have no matter where they work. Healthcare. I'm hoping that this pandemic has taught all of us that it's a public health necessity and an economic necessity to equip everyone with health care. The idea that that's an employment perk should make no sense to anyone anymore. This workforce shows that. They all struggle with having health care coverage because they aren't classified in most cases, as full-time employees or even part-time employees. I could go on, but they show us all of the essential benefits, all the basics that every working adult is going to need in 10 years. Continuing education, healthcare, access to parental leave, to sick leave, to family leave that's paid because it's economically something that we benefit collectively, not just as a society, but as consumers, having everyone have those basics in place so that they they literally are not um, clinging to a specific employer uh, or dependent um, on a specific employer, given that 10 years from now, we're going to have more and more of this distributed work. It's a sea change in how workers and employers and that foundational relationship between them. Exactly. I mean, to me, this is the opportunity here, and I am a relentless optimist, The opportunity is literally to start organizing our work around our lives 
instead of organizing our lives around work. Amen. Yeah. Right. And I mean, we need that so deeply in the United States. It's very peculiar to the United States, but but not exclusively our own peculiarity that we're so obsessed with um, with work, but in many cases because we need to meet some basics. And I think we've lost track of the value of those basics being addressed collectively, really cost-sharing some basics. And I'm going to keep saying healthcare out loud because that's one of those things that in this new world of work, it won't be obvious who should pay for it. So we need to make it something that we don't have to think hard about and that everybody just has so that we can all come in and out of this workforce. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what every employer needs because they won't know what they need three months from now. They just know what they need today. And we as workers want to be able to come in and out of those opportunities without ever feeling like I got to figure out how to stay put, even though my interests and my capacity to contribute have moved on. Like that's, that's the, that's the thing I hope we take away from what I feel we've learned from people doing ghost work. So we want to move on to our lightning round because uh, you've been so generous <laughs> with your time and we don't want to take advantage of that any further, but this has been fascinating. So I'll start us out on, on the lightning round by asking what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, I would love to be a mountaineer. Oh, cool. <laughs> I would absolutely love that. <laughs> How do you define success? Process. Exploring and feeling like I've grown from a process. What resources do you wish existed for women in tech or looking to get into tech that don't currently exist? Paid leave and paid uh, education. Mm-hmm. All right. This is a fun one. What's the weirdest food you've ever eaten? Oh, my goodness. What is the weirdest food? I've, I've had some odd things. <laughs> um, I have definitely eaten crickets. Wow. On purpose? <laughs> on, purpose, on purpose they were roasted like fire roasted crickets All right. okay lean protein okay um exactly. <laughs> what celebrity would you cast to play you in a movie oh my that's a weird question <laughs> oh that's a fascinating question oh my goodness justin bieber <laughs> <laughs> anybody who's seen my hair knows why it's like, oh my gosh what's something that's that's a great answer i'm like what's something about you that people would be surprised to know but it could be the answer to the first <laughs> we knocked you out there um some people probably know this but i uh, got stuck on the face of mount whitney um years ago and had to sleep in a basically a a hammock of ropes uh, on a technical climb oh goodness oh wow <laughs> All right. You're an adventurous woman. (laughs) I used to be. Um, This might also tie in. I don't know. But what is a funny mistake when you were starting out and the story behind it? Oh, I remember. I I was thinking about this the other day. I remember being in a job interview in college and somebody asked me about, um, could I be a sounding board? And I'd never heard that phrase before. I didn't really understand what they were asking. And I tried to bluff my way through responding instead of asking them, could you explain what you mean? And I really thought they meant, how do I keep from sounding bored when somebody's talking to me? <laughs> and and it, I didn't get the job. And I, it was to this day, I just find it one of the silliest moments in a job interview where I didn't just stop and say, I don't, 
I don't think I know what that phrase means. Could you explain what you're asking me? <laughs> I love that. If you could start a movement that was guaranteed to go global, what would it be? Oh, guaranteed healthcare and sick leave, parental leave, child care for everyone. What myth about women in your field or in the field of STEM in general would you like to dispel? That there is anything less than complete brilliance in the capacity of women to contribute. I can't believe we still ask a question about are women still, are they as good at, at math as men? I can't believe that's still uttered by anybody in our world, and it is. And that's ridiculous. Have you surprised yourself in this journey up to this point? Yes, actually, almost every day. How? <laughs> I am so deeply humbled by. Um, the workers I have met and continue to meet every day who remind me that nobody should really speak for them and just their capacity for uh, finding value in the work they're doing. They remind me that we all find value in the work that we do. There's nothing meaningless about work. It's, it's being valued for the work you do. That's mm. challenging. Last one. Fill in the blank. Blank like a girl. Crush it. Yeah. <laughs> I have loved our conversation, oh, Mary. Thanks thank you uh -huh. so much. Thank you for thank you for having me on the show. Oh my gosh, so great. We want to um let people know how they can find you and how they can find your book. So the book's website is www.ghostwork.info and it has all the papers, public talks, anything anybody would want to um, consume about the book other than the book itself. And I am often found on Twitter having little tirades, and I'm at Mary L. Gray, G-R-A-Y. Awesome. Well, keep awesome. crushing it, Mary. <laughs> Thank you. You yeah. too. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.wegetrealaf.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women. <laughs>